George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Look, I know you want to get to the podcast. I'm going to keep this short. When it comes to opera, we're the only ones bringing you everything you need to know about the art form, the people, and the stories you know, we every haven't damn We have done a roundup week. of other podcasts about opera late, lately. Uh, we, know mean, we, we love Aria Code, but there are other shows out there. There's like Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, or Opera, Drugs, and Rock. Is that what it's called? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, but there are other people out there. So we don't know if, if other people are bringing people the stories they need to know every week. These are other really great yeah. opera podcasts. For me to poop on. <laughs> hey, check it out. Five bucks buys an ad on social media. Ten bucks covers our website for a month. Twenty bucks makes a hundred lapel pins. So if you haven't seen our ads on social media, it's because we don't have five bucks. Or maybe five bucks isn't enough to cover our ads on social media or maybe we need to learn how to build the audience for those things look you know? 20 bucks that's enough to l- buy a face mask for our whole team so they don't catch coronavirus we can share the mask yeah that is not gonna work <laughs> yes right. the can- mask is not even gonna work we're all doomed the olympics are canceled thank mm. you matt cummings look don't think you can give oh yes you can simply review us on apple podcasts share our facebook posts or just retweet okay. us and tell people hey i like this podcast and that guy oliver here he's Most of all, keep listening to America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk Radio Show that's normally live, but just a podcast for now, about opera, period, from the Ravenswood studio right here on the north side of Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, connecting you via Zoom to co-hosts Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, tonight... Spring training for your ears. Our segment returns over the next few weeks. Tune up your familiarity with the comic masterpiece Albert Herring. With history hurdles and recording reps, get ready to become the point guard for Team Benjamin Britton. But first, Lydia Yankovskaya returns. The highly sought-after conductor has already had a whirlwind season with world premieres at the Prototype Festival, Minnesota Opera, and with one of our hometown teams, Chicago Opera Theater. Find out how she juggles it all when she goes inside the huddle with Oliver and Ashley. And then, two-minute drill, all your opera headlines. Hashtag MeToo tenor Vittorio Grigolo wants to caress your ears. That's towards the end of the show. And, of course, give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories. Email operaboxscore gmail.com. Tweet us at operaboxscore or just post on our Facebook page. And opera in the time of Corona, are you an employee of the opera world whose work has been affected by COVID-19? We want to hear from you. How are you coping? What does work look like right now? What are your hopes and dreams and fears for yourself and this art form? Just record a voice memo, 30 to 60 seconds. You can send it to operaboxscoregmail.com. Got a great show for you tonight or whenever you happen to be listening. I'm astounded that the one sport still happening right now is UFC, right? So essentially like extreme boxing. You feel like those men and women that do UFC would be as susceptible to this virus as anyone else, not least because like they're inches away from each other. They have no masks. There's bodily fluids everywhere. I, you have to wonder how much brain 
they have left. All right, let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. We last spoke to Lydia Yankovskaya shortly after her appointment as Chicago Opera Theater's Staley Music Director in 2017. With one and a half seasons under her belt and countless other engagements around the country, the stay-at-home order gave our team a chance to get an update on what it's been like to be one of the preeminent new music specialists leading an American opera company. Oliver and Ashley begin the conversation asking her about this year's prototype festival. Yeah, it was the world premiere of a new opera by Ricky and Gordon called Ellen West. We actually, we premiered it at Opera Saratoga in the summer and then brought it to the Prototype Festival. Uh, it's a two-person show. Jennifer Zetlin was the soprano and Nathan Gunn uh, was singing the other role. But it's a really moving piece, uh, deeply intellectual and spiritual piece that makes you think about things in a very new way. Um, And I just love what Beth Morrison is doing at the Prototype Festival. Uh, Beth Morrison Projects, uh, who produced the piece, uh, have been doing new work for almost a decade now. And in particular, uh, they focused on bringing new compositional voices, composers who maybe have not written a lot of opera in the past um, and really developing those people over time, giving them opportunities. Ricky and Gordon, of course, is someone who has written a great deal of operatic work. Mm -hmm. But Ellen West was a highly personal piece for him and something that was very different from what he's explored in the past. We were also really excited at COT this spring to present David T. Little's Soldier Songs. You mentioned Dog Days, which was recently at Northwestern. And Soldier Songs was also supposed to be starring Nathan Gunn, like Ellen West. It was a one-man show. And Nathan and I actually had already rehearsed for it a couple of weeks ago. And it's so powerful and such an incredible mix of musical styles in a way um, that makes me think of Stravinsky, of taking these, Stravinsky took Russian folk music and just blended it with the traditional Western idiom. And David does that with rock music. There's heavy metal screaming. David, uh, Nathan Gunn learned to heavy metal scream for soldier <laughs> songs. And it was just such a big shame to have to cancel uh, those performances this spring because I was so excited for that um, a prototype and Beth Morrison show to come here to Chicago. Can you imagine the master classes of the future, like where, you know, Nathan Gunn comes into Northwestern University and like some punk, you know, young baritone has to get up there and like give his five arias and offer something from soldier songs. And Nathan Gunn has to like, OK, you got to go. Ah! <laughs> you know, it's already happening. We laugh, but Nathan, in preparation for this, actually, both for this and a, and a new work that he's developing with Du Yun, also in collaboration with Beth Morrison and Prototype, um, he went to New York City and took lessons with a teacher who specializes in these like extended techniques that rock musicians and pop musicians mm-hmm. use. And he really learned to like growl and heavy metal scream and um, create these amazing effects that can be really powerful when they're done in the right context by the right singer. Hmm. So tell us about what your 1920 has season has been like up to now. I mean, I don't even know all the things you do because I just see your name everywhere. And every time I like I log on to Facebook, I see that, oh, he, she's over there now. Oh, she's over there now. What? The, I mean, I don't. it's incredible all the things you do. And uh, I don't want to give your resume out. Like right now, people can look it up, but um, we can maybe just focus on the past couple of months. 
Yeah, well, it's been super, super busy. At Chicago Opera Theater in the fall, we did this massive double bill of Joby Talbot's um, and Jean Shears' Everest and Rahmine of Seleko. And Everest is a really powerful work, speaking of new pieces that really speak to you. Um, but it's massive. It's, it has a huge orchestra, big chorus, and we did it in double bill with Seleko. So that was a really big undertaking for us. Um, and in addition, I've done a, a bunch of concerts and uh, several productions, including that prototype production. I was just in Minnesota Opera for over a month rehearsing um, Edward Tulane by Paula Pristini and Mark Campbell. But uh, unfortunately, the day we were supposed to move into the theater, um, the production had to be canceled because of the current crisis. Uh, they're hoping to move it to a future season. The plan currently is to present it in the next couple of seasons, which is wonderful. But it, it's, of course, such a shame when things get canceled or moved. Hmm. We just spoke to Priti Gandhi uh, a couple of weeks ago, like right when you were getting ready to probably put up um, Edward Tulane. And um, yeah, we were just so happy to hear that she has all these ideas and she wants to be so inclusive and she still thinks of her job from the artist perspective. Um, She's what... incredible. She's an incredible leader, incredible person, incredible musician. I think is she's, they're so lucky to have her at Minnesota opera. What do you think it, I mean, here's where I'm going to be, be careful. What is different uh, about working with uh, a female person of color as a leader in an arts organization? Have you noticed any difference? I mean, I think the most important thing is not the person's color or background, but how open-minded they are and to what extent they want to be inclusive. I think sometimes having certain kinds of personal experiences can um, help someone be, be more open-minded or inclusive, but I would say that is certainly not always the case. There are plenty of people who have experienced adversity themselves, but uh, who do not think about how it might affect others or others who have not experienced adversity, but who are uh, very, uh, very, very careful um, to consider another perspective. Uh, with Preeti in general, she's just really brilliant. She spent so many years in the industry, as you know, as a singer before becoming an administrator. She also has a background in other areas. And she just thinks very deeply about what opera is and what opera means, the importance of heritage works and how do we approach them in a way that speaks to today's audiences, but also the importance of representing as many voices as possible on the stage and, and most essentially why that's important, that we don't just do it for its own sake, but because bringing more voices to the stage allows us to present better stories, allows us to make better art. Yeah, and to make newer art. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And we're, we're very lucky right now that there's an insurge of more and more uh, fantastic composers and librettists and performers who come from a really wide variety of areas. And if we really seek those out, people out and give them opportunities and support them, it will only continue, um, our, our art form will only continue to flourish. Which is so wonderful and something that I really champion a lot, um, but I can't help but think about some of the other folks within our listenership who are very 
loyal to the classics, shall we say. Uh, and so since we've got both sets of those ears and brains listening, uh, if if you were to have, you know, have the ears of those listeners and champions of the classics for, you know, a couple of sentences, what would you, what would you tell them? And, and what would you, what would you, what would you say to them to, to try to get them to be as excited about this as, as you and Preeti and folks at Prototype are? Well, I'm very loyal to the classics also and <laughs> standard literature. I've conducted a, a very large number of these standard operas and will continue to do so. And I love them dearly. Uh, we can't throw everything away that might have some issue because if we did, we would have nothing left. All, all classic literature, all classic art. I mean, there's so much that we would just discard if we... Uh, thought that anything that might offend someone in some way um, uh, should, should not be performed. I think we have to have dialogue about issues that we encounter because the world changes and culture changes and our viewpoints change. And often things that seemed very open-minded 100 or 200 years ago and that were actually very progressive at the time are not now. Um, so the important thing is that we have dialogue. And in fact, I think having some of these questions come up can only be eye-opening because sometimes we don't think deeply enough about the world around us. And I think some of the questions we encounter in heritage works can allow us to see our own world in a more nuanced way. Um, but also the, the great works of art can be there that are from the past. And we also can create great works of art of now and for the future. Those things are not mutually exclusive. And all of those works, it's, um, all of those pieces, Verdi and Puccini at some point were brand new composers. And were, their works were world premieres and some were successful and some were not. And some of the successful ones have not... Uh, was was the test of time and some of the less successful ones have come back many many years later so I think it is our responsibility if nothing else to create great and to foster great work that represents our time and that can live into the future um, and the way we can ensure that the operas of today are really good because that's also what we want we don't want just to create new work for the sake of creating new work mm -hmm. and yeah. it's important that we develop um, new voices that we give opportunities to composers to librettists to various creators to hone their craft and become great and become great advocates and great, great representatives for our time and our culture. I'm already reimagining uh, or imagining the future productions of Traviata where Violetta is the woman who didn't wash her hands and, <laughs> and she still had parties when everybody stopped having parties. Yeah. The shame. Um, so I feel like Chicago Opera Theater, with your leadership, has really established its brand. And to me, the mission is very clear of what you guys are doing. But I'd love to hear Agreed. it. In your, I'd love to hear it in your own words, and for you to talk about the like the the, the three the streams of programming that you uh, envision for Chicago Opera Theater, as evidenced by the past two seasons and maybe seasons going forward. Chicago Opera Theater's mission is to present opera as a living art form, as something that's of today and for today. And our hope is to 
bring as wide a range of operas to Chicago audiences as possible. And we already have a wonderful large company in town, the Lyric Opera of Chicago, that presents very large pieces, especially heritage works on an exceptionally high level. Um, And so we focus on filling in some of the gaps and bringing in some of the works that have not yet been seen here. So that falls into several categories. The first is canonic works that have been performed very widely elsewhere, but have not made it to Chicago. So most recently, we focused on kind of a cycle of Russian pieces because there's such a wealth of Russian literature that has not been performed here. It is also my expertise, so something that I can bring to Chicago. So we did Tchaikovsky's Yolanta, Rafaina of Seleko. We have some more pieces planned down the line. Um, the second wave of this are works that have recently become part of the canon, but have not yet been in Chicago. So for instance, this spring, we were supposed to do David T. Little Soldier Songs, which has been done by dozens and dozens of companies all across the country and beyond, but has not yet been to Chicago. Jake Heggie's Moby Dick, Jane Heggie and Gene Shear's Moby Dick. There was also an example of this Again, a work that has been done by major houses all over the country and beyond, but hasn't been here. And Everest by Joby Talbot and Jean Shear was another example of this, a piece that is monumental, that is really a masterpiece that has become part of the canon more recently, but had not yet been to Chicago. So that's the second stream. And then the third portion of our programming are new works, the development of new work, the showcasing of world premieres or second productions, things that were recently performed. So for instance, we did uh, Stefan Weissman's and David Cody's The Scarlet Ibis, uh, which was a second production for the work. It had been premiered actually also a prototype festival piece that then came here to Chicago in a totally new reimagining from a staging perspective. We did the world premiere of Freedom Ride by Dan Shore this year, and we are committed to doing world premieres regularly as well as part of this initiative. So it's clear to me because I'm paying attention, but how do you get the message across that stream two and stream three are actually different? Because uh, I think there are plenty of you know audience members who don't see the distinction between something that is new in the canon and stuff that's brand spanking new. Yeah, I think it's it's sometimes if something's unfamiliar, people just see it as unfamiliar. For us, the main distinction is just the history of the work. That with when we have something from what you called kind of that second category, a stream two, so something like Moby Dick or Everest, um, that we can really focus on the how the the composer and the librettus already being established the work already being established where it has been performed and what its history of performance is the glorious reviews that it's gotten everywhere in some ways it makes our jobs much easier because we can say oh this this and this major company has performed this to great success or this production is coming from another major organization for stream three our focus is really on the people developing the work and we're also, we have a um, part, as part of that third category, we have a composer training program called the Vanguard Initiative, uh, where we work with emerging opera composers. But as part of that category, we're also really working to bring audiences in on the development process and make sure that people start to understand what it takes to put on an opera, which is a lot, and what it takes to write an opera. Uh, so we're regularly holding workshops, piano workshops, orchestral workshops of pieces in progress. 
so that audience members and people in the community and artists really start to see what happens behind the scenes as an opera is getting written and also become invested in that work and become part of making that work and bringing it to life. Most of these workshops are followed by moderated feedback sessions. We also make sure that the composer and the librettist have an opportunity to speak to everyone who's hearing the work for the first time um, and to make that personal connection. I have a lot of questions now, um, and you can, we'll start with one. Have you been able to have conversations with your executive director about who the audiences are for these things and how the audience is growing? Absolutely. And and we actually have right now, it's over Zoom, a standing meeting with myself, our general director, Ashley Magnus, and uh, our uh, general manager who has our marketing, Chris Storr. And and the three of us talk about that quite a bit. And it's challenging because a company our size has a number of different audiences. I suppose any organization has a number of different audiences, but we find ourselves kind of at a crossroads between the large companies and smaller organizations that do really um, the things that are really off the beaten path. And so um, we work hard to reach those different audiences in different ways and to give everybody something a little bit different. But I I think the, for us, and for me, certainly the main sticking point is that no matter what we do or what kind of work we do, that it's about the quality. It's the most important thing is not just, is it a standard piece? Is it a new piece? Is it a heritage work or something that is fresh off the presses or maybe is even in progress, but that the artistic quality of whatever we do is on the highest level that we can make it no matter what. And that the work itself is on the highest level that we can find for what fits into our season. Because if the quality is there, I think uh, people don't really care if it's new or old or uh, what style it's in. Um, I think uh, it, it helps our audiences become more open-minded and it helps our audiences discover and explore something new. Um, there are moments I feel when the mission is so clear and when the work is so good, where like everything is firing on all cylinders. And I could think of examples of times in the past couple of years where I've had this type of experience with Chicago Opera Theater. For example, Whitney Morrison singing the mad scene in Freedom Ride or uh, is it Jonathan Mitchie in the Alan Turing? Was that his name? Yeah. Jonathan yeah. Mitchie's mm-hmm. uh, love Mickey. duet. Uh, Mickey. The love duet mm-hmm. with, um, uh, what's it, Jonas Hacker? Um, mm-hmm. I forget, yes. I forget the, the characters' names. I know, I know the singers. I don't know the characters' names. Or like in Scarlet Ibis, um, just how, I don't know, bizarre and weird in a wonderful way um, Jordan Rudder was as... Uh, I forget the character's name, uh, little boy. As Doodle's name, character. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, these were just times where I feel like this is this is exactly right, and I know that that takes a lot of crafting on your end in casting and, and coaching and whatnot. But are there things that I'm missing, or are there ways that you get to those points uh, to create that moment for the audience? Like this is what I want you to experience this this artist in this moment because we really worked hard on this, you know. Yeah, I mean, we do think about that a lot and we work very hard. In opera, There, as you know, there are just so many elements coming together and so many different people coming together 
that one of the challenges with opera um, is that every one of those elements has to be just right in order for those moments to happen, right? Because if the orchestra isn't quite right, or the casting isn't quite right, or the story isn't quite right, or the something else isn't quite right, it can just offset everything else, and it can have this domino effect. And that's one of the challenges of opera. It's also one of the magical things about opera, because I think it hits us ever so much more when everything comes together, because even if you're not from the business, you just have this awareness that there are hundreds of people and hundreds of different elements happening simultaneously in exactly the precise right way in this moment, which is magical. There's something really magical about that. So on our end, um, I, I think inevitably there's always something that goes wrong. Inevitably, there's always something unexpected. But what we can do is plan as far in advance as possible and think as carefully as possible about how we approach these things. But my perspective from the artistic side is that the most important thing is to bring together the right people. Because if you have the right creatives and the right minds and the right talents behind the work, then no matter what challenge comes up, they will come up with a solution that is meaningful um, and beautiful. And uh, so I work very carefully, um, <coughs> excuse me, I work very carefully together with Ashley Magnus, our general director, to make sure, first of all, that we find the right creative team for any project and that it's the right team for that specific project. Mm -hmm. So sometimes someone may be a fabulous artist, but may not be the right fit for a given art opera or may not be the right fit for a given team of creators. Um, and in additional cast, in addition, casting, of course, is key. We're fortunate also to be located in Chicago, which is filled with so many spectacular singers. And a plus I work as we talked about earlier, I work quite a bit around the country and the world. And so I think carefully um, as I go to different places about singers I encounter and what roles might be right for them and what where they might fit best, whom I want to bring to Chicago. And I also make a point of hearing singers at the different companies where I'm working to hearing, hearing the resident artists or hearing other people in the community while I'm there who live in those cities to make sure that I really know who's out there and whom we may want to bring to COT. So I know we don't have that much time left, but uh, do you, and, and I also know that these conversations have to be approved by the board and by the CDC, but <laughs> do you guys have some strategies for going forward with COT in the coming months? At this point, so much is up in the air for us as for every other company. Currently, we are planning to proceed with next season as uh, we have originally planned it. Uh, we were going to announce our season in uh, late Mar or mid-March. Um, unfortunately, yeah. we had to cancel our season announcement because it was right when all of this hit. We're yeah. delaying it by a bit, not because we're uncertain at this point, but more also because it's not a good time it's, it's for tone people. Deaf to do that right now. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't think it's a good time to be announcing the next season. But uh, but we, um, at this point, we're hoping to proceed as planned. Uh, of course, we do have plan B and plan C in case this continues into the fall and we still, for instance, can't have large gatherings when we get to the fall or there are other um, unexpected economic or other uh, things that might come up. But we're working really hard to preserve our casting 
as much as possible to hire a similar number of artists as much as possible because in particular as you know this is a time that is so challenging for performing yeah. artists and everybody in the field where people have just had the rug swept out from under them so yeah. we're thinking about this a lot as well as we're coming up with plans b and c i wonder if this is gonna bring back the outdoor venue, the outdoor arenas like Orange or something like that, Arena de Verona. Everybody gets to go to hear the acoustics outside and you have to sit five seats apart from each other. <laughs> so only the, big, only the big voices survive. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, like all of us, I'm, I'm very curious to see how this impacts our industry in the long run or certainly also in the shorter uh, run and, and for the in the next five, 10 years, how will people approach attending public events or performances? Will it change or will everyone be just eager to jump right back in as soon as they can? I don't know, it's so hard to anticipate. I have already found myself, uh, because we've become now so conditioned to the, the concept of social distancing and the concept of overly cautious, in some cases, hygiene, uh, I'll be watching a piece of media, whether it's, you know, whether it's a recorded opera performance, whether it's just a, a television show on, on Netflix or another streaming service. And the second any person comes with, uh, like is breaking that social distance barrier, I immediately go into a mild panic. I'm watching <laughs> a scene of OM and he's going to touch her face. And in my brain, I'm going, no, 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 no. I'm like, it's a beautiful moment, but I'm already in that moment of like, no, you can't do that. Don't you know? And I'm like, no, it's in the, it, this was hundreds of years ago, but yeah. still. It's amazing how quickly we get, become reconditioned to that. <laughs> well, that's yeah. a great pivot to our last question. Um, is there anything that you've seen or that you look forward to seeing that you know is going to be streaming? Uh, I mean, the, the Met, I have, as much as we're sort of angry at the Met for other reasons, um, has been putting out some really great content. And I'm just overwhelmed with all the other options that are out there right now for different opera companies I would never even dream of visiting that have stuff available. And I just, I'm not watching anything as a result because it's too much. The choice is too big. So I need fewer choices. But is there something that you saw or you, or you know that's coming up soon? Oh, there are so many. It's uh, like you, I feel very overwhelmed actually by the number of amazing streams that are happening. And I wish I had more time because I, I actually feel like I'm more busy than ever right now. Um, <laughs> so I, I wish I had more time uh, to to watch all of these streams and to hear all this music. I just listened to a wonderful live stream of composer Stacey Garrup's Terra Nostra, which is this gorgeous oratorio um, that was live streamed from Europe. Um, I have the Mets Parsifal on my calendar for this week. And I, I've heard that's an amazing production um, and I'm hoping to watch it this week. Uh, I also, uh, there's a yeah, production of Daniel Catan's Il Postino, which I just love dearly, mm -hmm. uh, that is being streamed, I believe, from Santa Barbara this week. Um, I can't, I'll have to check exactly, but um, it's this, uh, Daniel Catan is also one of my favorite composers, and I love Il Postino. It's such a superb piece. I'm looking forward hmm. to hearing that as well. I wonder if that's a hint. Um, yeah. Uh, no, but it's just that he's a wonderful composer. Florencia <laughs> Piazza, also a wonderful work of his, if you don't know. Um, the Prototype Festival is actually streaming a large number of their past productions oh. right now. 
which is really exciting. Uh, they've done a, a great deal of these post-apocalyptic operas. So they're, they're starting uh, with focusing on, on post-apocalyptic works, which I think is really great for the current time period and certainly relevant. Dog Days, I believe, was the first one that they streamed. You know, speaking of Dog Days, just the other day I saw on social media a picture of somebody dressed as a dog so that they can go out in public and be wandering around. And it was, it literally was like, oh my God, it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Well, Lydia, thank you so much for taking time out of your morning to talk to us. And um, yeah, we have our fingers crossed that we get to see more uh, of Chicago Opera Theater coming soon. Of course, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Lydia Yankovskaya inside the huddle with Oliver and Ashley. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us wherever you are, however you're listening. Earlier on in the show, we talked about opera in the time of Corona. Singers, creators, producers, and opera administrators were collecting short testimonials to be broadcast on the OBS. What stories are we missing? What has been an unexpected bright spot? What has been lost for good? How has your work been affected by COVID-19? We want to hear from you. How are you coping? What does work look like right now? Record yourself, send the MP3 or WAV file to operaboxscore at gmail.com. We're going to start the bidding with a message from bass baritone Zach James checking in from Philadelphia. Hey, what's up? This is Zachary James uh, in Philadelphia. And um, a couple weeks ago, I was sent home from my show with Minnesota Opera. You know, along with the rest of the industry, I've since lost four gigs and I have two more gigs on the book for 2020. I'm expecting at least one of them to fall through. Uh, things are pretty bad, not going to lie. Um, not sure how we are going to make it out of this hole in the arts industry. Um, you know, I just got health insurance for the first time in several years, and now I can't afford it. But I can't afford not to have it in the event I get sick. So it sucks. <laughs> Hang in there, everyone. Let's do some spring training for your ears. So, beloved audience... Uh, some of you used to listen to Opera Now podcast, and you might remember a segment called Oliver's Corner. Well, the closest thing we've got on Opera Box Score is spring training for your ears. And we thought that since there's not a ton of opera news coming out in the foreseeable future, that we'd spend the next couple episodes introducing you to operas that we think are important for you to learn about. And um, by committee, we decided to begin this with Benjamin Britten's Albert Herring. And I think Albert Herring is a great opera to learn about, especially if you are one of those people who just really embraces the standard canon and you love your Verdi and your bel canto and your Mozart and maybe even your Wagner and you haven't really <laughs> stepped that far out of, you know, 19th century opera. Uh, I think Benjamin Britten is the gateway to 20th century work. I think that his love of tonality, uh, even while there were plenty of composers of his, uh, who there were contemporaneous composers who were experimenting with all sorts of different compositional techniques and, you know, um, serialism, etc. cetera, um, Britain really cared mostly about the storytelling and about making sure the audience felt like they had something to grab onto. 
And uh, I really appreciate and, that. And if I can add something, Oliver, yeah. he he also really cared about making sure that the the text and the stories that he was was telling were clear, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. Uh, and and clear on multiple levels that that become more and more obvious as you die. I, I with repeat listening, but like a a good part of it is fairly transparent on the first time that you're listening through enough to really sit there and stay engaged. Agree. And I'll say this, that like I heard Albert Herring when I was in college and I wasn't ready for it. Um, I did not know enough about opera outside of the stuff that I really loved to really appreciate what Britain was doing. But the more I really looked at this music, I realized that Britain planted all sorts of little things in it for me, for people like me, so that I would for feel... For Oliver specifically. Yeah, so I would feel comfortable. Like, there's so much in all, really all of Britain's operas, but especially in this one, where if you just know what he's referring to, you're like, ah, oh, I get it. That's what you're talking about. And Albert Herring is a very specific opera about English culture during this era. I guess it's Victorian era. I don't know if you would describe it as, but it's like small town England and all of the sort of judgment and everybody knows each other type of feeling when you live in a small town and um, it's officially set in uh, April and May of 1900 there you go nailed it so very um, end of the Victorian era but some people say that um, the characters in this opera are still ones that we find especially Lady Billows that we find in society today so it is a timeless story and we'll talk more about themes in Britain's operas as we uh, get through the next three weeks of talking about Albert Herring. We're going to start uh, in Act One, and we'll do both scenes of Act One. But before we throw it to some clips, Weston, did you have something you wanted to add? Yeah, I want to uh, talk a little bit about sort of the, I think, the historical context of this piece. Um, um, because musically, as you said, this is very much kind of, uh, I would say, beginner's introduction to modern music, as it were, 20th century modern music, I should say. Uh, So it was composed, uh, it premiered in 1947, which is only two years after uh, the end of World War II. Uh, And as such, it was sort of the first of the the wave of post-war compositions uh, in the opera world. There's not a lot in the repertoire from this time period, and that's for a couple of reasons. Uh, The big one uh, that you want to uh, be aware of is the fact that prior to World War II and immediately after World War II are two very different eras in classical music, not just opera, but uh, everything. Before World War II, you might see huge orchestras, opulent orchestrations, um, uh, a lot of really avant-garde sort of uh, sentiment going on, um, huge-scale stuff. After the war, you have a whole generation of musicians who were killed or out of work, had to move on to other things, especially in Britain. Um, and you have um, uh, an economic necessity to scale everything down. Uh, and thus you have chamber opera, especially Albert Herring being a chamber opera itself, very small orchestra. Um, but at the same time, uh, you have another two simultaneous simultaneous trends emerging uh, after the war. You have the post-war avant-garde, which has moved 
full on into serialism, dark, brooding, bleak, reflecting the world around them as they saw it. Or you have the sort of reactionaries who just wanted to forget the war, forget all of that. And so you have sort of a lot of like romantic throwbacks, but not with the forces that they could muster to really sell that kind of thing. And Benjamin Britten, especially Albert Herring, is neither of these. And that's one of the reasons it's so successful and still has a place uh, on the stage, even though uh, it is by no means uh, uh, conservative. There's lots of really clever musical techniques, lots of uh, uh, polystylism, some even avant-garde moments to it. It is not serialist. It's lots of fun. There's lots of little references to stuff. Um, but at the same time, it is not uh, a trite sort of rehash of what came before. There are genuinely moving moments in this opera, um, both musically and even in the story. You know, the the simplicity of Albert, you know, is is something that I think would have resonated with a lot of Britons after the All war. All right, well, we haven't actually talked about the characters yet, so let's let's talk about Let's do like that. that. So <laughs> yeah. uh, there are three commercial recordings that are easy to find on the streaming service that rhymes with mollify. Uh, the first one is the recording of the opera conducted by Benjamin Britten, which stars Peter Pears as Albert Herring. Then there's one that was made in 1996, uh, which was conducted by the other Britain specialist compose, uh, conductor, Stuart Bedford. Uh, and I wrote something here about the cast, and I can't find it. But um, it has a fantastic cast. Um, where did I put this? Uh, the cast includes, that recording was made on the Collins label and has Gerald Finley <laughs> as oh, Sid and, oh. and Felicity Palmer, we just talked about, or we'll talk about later on today, as Florence Pike. And that recording was reissued on the Naxos label in 2006, so that's where you'll find it. And that happens to be the same year that Richard Hickox released his recording, uh, which has uh, Alan Opie as the vicar, one of the best of the vicars, and James Gilchrist as Albert Herring, which is the most youthful of the three Albert Herrings that are commercially recorded. We're going to sample a bit, a bit of these three recordings as we go through the first two scenes of the opera. And the first scene is a tour de force of uh, character sketches. So many characters introduced, and each one has their own sort of like musical language. Uh, and we won't have time to actually hear all of them, but we'll begin by listening to a little bit of Florence Pike who is the maid of Lady Billows, who is the aristocrat, from the uh, first recording made in 1949, or made in 1965, uh, the Benjamin Britten recording. Quicker. 
So Florence Pike is the uh, maid of Lady Billows, who sort of is like the villain of the opera in a way. Um, she's got problems, and she's going through it in this mini aria. Yeah, and what's just so great about this, like you, there's this energy from the from the flutes and the percussion, and it just feels like a woman who is just beleaguered and has got so much to do and is always being pulled in many different directions by her boss, and she keeps this little book of all the things that she's supposed to her to do list of the day, and she just gets a small little moment where she reflects, and right away the energy starts up again, and it's it's perfect. It feels like um. Gosford Park or like upstairs, downstairs, that type of like, you know, uh, it, and it, the, the orchestra accompaniment when you're talking about the flutes, it sounds like the way that Britain composes storm music a lot of the time. So it's like the, there's this, the social winds are blowing her to and fro and she's just utterly without more, but like, like, like can't stop hectoring and nitpicking on the way. And her vocal lines really reflect that. It's a lot of, you know, pecking at the same note again and again and again to try to just sound so impatient and so flustered and really make everyone else feel that way too. So many of the people of the town, like the the committee that of the of the May Festival, are gathering at Lady Bills's house to uh, nominate the May Queen for that year's May Festival. And um, there's so much music leading up to Lady Bills's actual entrance, and a lot of people are talking about her. And it's one of the great entrances in opera where you hear about a character and you understand the character before she even walks on stage. But here is actually from Lady Bills's uh, opening monologue, and this is once again from the Benjamin Britten recording, which is Sylvia. I think her name is Sylvia Fisher. Uh, That's as, correct. As Lady Bills. This year, twenty-five sovereigns, twenty-five, consider it my duty. Jennifer, sir. I had an affair with young Tom and Ella last Christmas. Hate to 
So it's almost like uh, Florence Pike is like Leporello to Lady Billow's is Don Giovanni. Like she has this book <laughs> and she has like this list of all these girls that are, you know, supposedly uh, trollops or harlots. And they're just probably regular 15 year old girls that just happen to do like one thing that she took. Nope. That girl doesn't work because she did this. It's like a purity test for everything. And they take note of everything. Some of the examples that she presents of the disqualifying factors are outrageous. The striking clock in that scene is one of the funniest moments in opera, in my opinion. Like, there's this beautifully constructed dramatic scene, and then Britain just punctuates it with that little interval, and then everybody goes back to their arguing yeah there's lots of really great noises that happen in this scene and uh, one of my favorite bits was at the very beginning when you know lady billows wants to make sure everybody realizes it's 25 sovereigns 25 sovereigns you know to make sure, make sure yeah that. i'm very we're uh, paying you for your chastity yeah. lady i'm so magnanimous <laughs> but make sure you guys all understand how magnanimous i am <laughs> So they go through this list of potential young ladies to be the May Queen, and none of them work, according to Florence Pike. Then the vicar comes out and sings this beautiful arios, maybe the most like poignant moment of the whole scene, when he suggests, why not go with a male candidate this year? And he nominates Albert Herring. We're going to jump to the Richard Hickox recording to hear... Alan Opie, and this is by far the most beautiful reading of this ario. So I've, I listened to, I listened to all three of them. So it's not that I've listened to that uh, many. It's but, gorgeous. But this one was clear and far away, like the best one. Oh. 
so there's so many things about that that just like signal to me how much Britain loves me. Um, there's the idea <laughs> that the bass drops out and it feels sort of like from St. Matthew's Passion, there's this aria near the end called Aus Liebe, where the texture completely changes in the oratorio and you get like this ethereal only woodwinds and it's like you're floating. And it's actually very scary to sing something like that without, without anything underneath you. But also you could think of all the French operas like Romeo and Juliet or whatever, wherever there's like a love moment and it's just like harps and, you know, flutes and stuff like that. So I love the way Sound- that... Yeah, it sounds a lot like the end of Faust yeah. or, or like yeah. the, the supernatural parts of some of uh, Tales of Hoffman. Exactly. Uh, like like the, it's a, this audio halo effect and you can even hear the fog machines just rolling <laughs> in <laughs> as, <laughs> as he kind of, yeah. you know, spits out this, this idea. But it's the well, music- and even the line of you know ba da da ba da da ba da da. That sounds like I don't know seventeen different opera themes that are not this one. Uh, so it's it's a nice, warm, comforting, comforting little nugget to chew on. Yeah, it's really sweet and romantic, and um, yeah, it's definitely like a little oasis in this highly energetic first scene. So speaking of energetic, they finally convince Lady Billows uh, to give the prize to Albert Herring. And here is Lady Billow's sort of like triumph music, and it becomes a fugue, which feels like the finale to Don Giovanni or any other Mozartian opera that has like this like repetitive theme sung by all the characters on stage. We will go back to the Benjamin Britten recording for this. <laughs> like so many things but you know Gilbert and Sullivan comes to mind with all the patter and with all the different voices coming at different times like I said feels like the end of Don Giovanni or even like the finale of abduction from the Seraglio um, I don't know I just get a real kick out of that type of music it's so much fun and you hear what Britain is doing like the compositional device is so obvious that maybe when this was written you know his uh, compatriot I mean his uh, contemporaneous peers were like this is not original, you know, but I'm happy that but, it's not original. <laughs> but the way that he does it in the in that Benjamin Britten way where he puts a little twist on it, because normally you would expect something but he does and that that syncopation coming through every time against the other phrase that is not syncopated in the same way makes it that your attention is pulled in in, in different directions at at not the time that you would really expect to from just hearing the theme 
Uh, and that I think is what is so satisfactory. That That's what's so satisfying about ensembles like this for me in opera, like all the time, is just where your attention goes to what layer of it. And he really circumvents that and subverts it in, a, in an entertaining way. Yeah, I, uh, you know, f fun Ashley trivia moment here. Uh, a lifetime ago when my voice was about 100 pounds lighter, um, I, I sang the role of Miss Wordsworth, who is the, the school teacher. And she's like the light, high you know, lots chirpy. of action. Up yeah. She's Adele. Yeah. It's yeah. It's the Adele, the chirpy, the bird. There's definitely some bird references a little later on. Um, and just hearing this music again, it gave me like a mild sense of PTSD for the <laughs> at the very, very end of the fugue, right before you cut it off just now, because there's, and in the measure before listening to it just now, most of the muscles in my body tensed up, and it was like, like oh, I'm not even singing it, but I was just like, I was like, oh God, that's that's I remember this. I remember how challenging this was, but it's such a cool freaking fugue, and it's not even like two and a half pages long. It's it's not long at all. I'm glad you brought it up because what what I forgot to mention is that Albert Herring is the perfect opera to uh, sing in a conservatory, sing at a college opera program. Yeah. Because there's mm. so many parts and all the parts are so well written and, you know, everybody has their moment and it's fun and you can get, you know, children, you can have like your young, you know, freshman, sophomore sopranos be the kids, you know, so it's just like, it's great for that reason, you know. And none of the parts is disgustingly long, like you get in some operas. They all share the spotlight pretty evenly, <laughs> even. Right, like, everybody's got some moments. And that's, Albert, you know, musically, you know, dramatically, it's such a great choice for conservatories or for any opera company is because, I mean, of all the 20th century composers in English, in my opinion, I mean, Britain, the operas are driven by character and by action, not absolutely. by emotion. And if you're a student who really wants to figure out how to act on the opera stage or you're a pro who, you know, really wants to, to get into the nuts and bolts of acting, this is the perfect show for that. So um, after this little fugue, there is a transition to the grocery store where Albert Herring works. It's his mother's green grocery store. And um, we are introduced to some children and the idea of children in this opera always, you know, brings it to this idea of Albert's sort of innocence and naivete. And then we meet uh, Sid, the bear hunk of the cast. And Sid, <laughs> Sid is just such, I mean, I, before I, I talk about Sid, George, you want to talk about the tra transition music in Britain in general? Because I feel like of all the composers I know of, if you want to set the stage for the scene that's to follow and not lose momentum, the music that Britain writes, usually, I think in all of his operas, is so brilliant for that. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, one of the three things I learned in grad school directing is that good directors tackle the transitions first. And in Britain, he's not writing in a style where the curtain comes in and a whole bunch of stuff happens upstage of the curtain while the music's playing. Is like you're expected to see all this happen in front of the audience and the music is so beautifully set to keep the energy of the story going through those transitions. And it's it's a dream to direct that. I would add that, uh, you know, before we meet Sid and Nancy and Albert, we do meet the three children. Of course, when I was a, a boy soprano star growing up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, I, I played the part of Harry. And uh, 
there's a sequence in the opera where the kids are bouncing this ball against a wall and it's in the score, like when the ball hits the floor and when the ball hits the wall. And I'll guarantee you, we never got it right once. Not one rehearsal, <laughs> not one performance. It's impossible. Trying to find an athletic boy soprano is not the easiest thing in the world, George. <laughs> hey now, hey now, hey now. Well, the first scene of Act One is full of so much tension, and it's mostly because everybody seems to be afraid of the Lady Billows and Florence Pike, for that matter. Um, but we get this music in Act Two when we are introduced to Sid, and he is sort of like the epitome of sexual liberty, and he's sort of the opposite, and he's sort of like maybe the reason why all of these 15-year-old girls in town don't have their virtue anymore. Um, he just is easy and light and sexy. And here's his little seduction asking uh, Nancy out uh, on a date after this, the, the store closes. He's like the butcher of the store, and she's what, the baker's daughter or something like that? I forget. There's all these um, – they all work in the community. And, um, yeah, Sid and Albert work together in the greengrocer – and, uh, yeah, here is Gerald Finley in probably the, the most luxuriously cast <laughs> of all time. Such, yeah. such a good pick. Um, I'm all about Sid. Gerard singing it. With Soprano and Taylor, and in this case, the little entrance of Albert Herring is sung by tenor uh, something Gillett. Chris, Chris, Christopher Gillett, is that his name? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Sorry, I didn't know that's off my head. I'm not a... Here we go. In the street, don't be late, or I whistle under your window. Yes, if you promise to wait in the street, if I'm late and not whistle under my window, your mom will be curious, and dad will be furious. Yeah, that's a really lovely moment where Sid and Nancy have their own sort of love duet going on, and Albert is there sort of eavesdropping and realizing, well, he's very uncomfortable, but then uh, Sid and Nancy leave the scene, and we get the soliloquy of Albert Herring, which to me feels so much like in Rigoletto after um, Rigoletto uh, leaves the palace and bumps into Sparafucile, and then he sings Parisiamo right before he meets Gilda when he goes home. It's that moment where, like, he something that he just heard sparks something in him. And he suddenly feels something he's never felt before. And he's beginning to explore his own anger, maybe even think about his own sexuality. We don't quite get that there in this scene. But uh, it's a really, really great acting moment for the singer. Matt, have you ever sung this role? No, I've looked at some of the music for it. It's and it's and it's so much fun. Uh, I would love to get to do e either. Albert, be honestly, the the mayor would be a blast. 
even. <laughs> so here, uh, oh, go on. And when bef- before you get to Albert, also what I really love about what Britain does with Sid and Nancy in this opera is he makes them bas- finish each other's sandwiches basically the whole time. Uh, like their their vocal lines resemble each other a lot, or one of them just kind of slinks into the other one, and it's this very suggestive harmonic language. All right, just because uh, it's a you, podcast doesn't mean that you get to get dirty. I mean, you just know what Sid and Nancy are going off to do. <laughs> so here, which is why they can't be making and queen. Okay, this is the Benjamin Britten recording. So we will hear uh, Peter Pears singing a little bit of this monologue. Each morning I get up at six and tidy up the store. Enthusiastically mix rice labels round the shop. So that was Peter Pears, and I don't know when we're going to talk about it, maybe next week, the week after that, but there's so much that has to do with Peter Pears being cast in these roles, these, um, you know, these antiheroes of Britain's operas and what that means. And um, yeah, that's a whole other topic that we'll, we'll save for future weeks, but um, Weston was commenting. Stay tuned. Yeah, Weston was commenting as we were listening to that together about the percussion and I have to say this, oh. this this monologue feels a lot like Britain. Like of all the music that we've heard so far, this music is the music that I feel like this is Benjamin Britten, the OG. Like this is the type of writing he has and a lot of his other operas and even his canticles and songs. Um, just, I don't even know how to describe it because like my, uh, my theory knowledge is not that great, but it's the way he uses recit- recitation tones and mm-hmm. comments with inter- interjections from the band, usually percussive instruments or harp, you know, like he, these like sort of continual moments that are chords that are completely dissonant, you know. And I don't know how singers learn this music because it's, uh, it's very disorienting. Matt or Ashley, do you have a comment on how to learn how to sing Britain when he's, he's not throwing you any bones? So hard. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let Matt go and then I'll go. Uh, and it it, 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 I can echo actually that it is so hard. And part of that is because this music was written for this music specifically was written for Peter Pierce, uh, who was Britain's partner, uh, and his muse. And so the his voice worked very differently than most people's voices, and just the way that he, the the range in which he liked to sing was was 
he was very comfortable sitting in the Passaggio, didn't really like singing up high, but could really sing a decent amount of runs. And so Britton used that along with his kind of idea of how to make the make the English texts sing and sound English uh, in that there are a lot of leaps. It goes all over the place. It's very, very intervallic in that you have to know every single note in relationship to the note that became, came before it, the note that came after it, what notes are going on around it, and they are not going to be the relationships that you expect or get from any other composer. So we'll think- uh, seconded, oh. yeah, seconded. I mean, there's a one of the one of the things that I had to do specifically for this piece. There were kind of two two phrases that I had to keep kind of beating into my head, uh, which were. Um, Ignore everything else and stay in your lane, um, because there's there's a lot of beautiful tonality in in the actual lines themselves. At least for Miss Wordsworth, which was the character I had to do. Uh, there's there's a lot of really lovely melodic things that are happening, but they're just enough different from the rest of what's going on around you. That if you try to lean in and try to do what a lot of singers will do with some other types of music and kind of find yourself in the chord and be there it's it, it will end in disaster you just have to stay you know you have to ignore everybody else for those moments and then when I talk about staying in your lane you know these these characters are written almost in a way that guarantees that you can cast by weight and color of the voice of the instrument uh you know Lady Billows is never going to be cast as a you know a, a Mozartian medium to light soprano that's just not how it's going to be miss wordsworth is never going to be a you know a big honking 17 lung monster caballet like that's just not how they are so remembering which lane is yours will help with remembering how to learn and how to sing and how to perform this music because if i try to take you know the weight of if, if i hear lady billows get excited and try to match that there's no way I'm going to make it through the Wordsworth lines. And the same way, conversely, if she hears me flitting around really high and tries to really hammer home those Lady Billows lines, they're not going to have the same impact because she's got to put so much more heft and, and dearth behind, behind her lines. The original Lady Billows, Joan Cross, sang Zieglinda and Madame Butterfly and Aida, just as an example. Yeah. Checks out. Checks out. So um, we're going to finish this segment um, listening to the sort of the finale music of the first act, which is when Lady Billows and her entourage come to the grocery store to (laughs) uh, pronounce Albert Herring as this year's May King. And this is where the music gets, you know, very pompous again. And Lady Billows brings the pomposity with her, you know, and it feels sort of patriotic slash Baroque slash pageant slash, you know, BBC proms type of thing, you know? Um, so b- before I hit play on this last track, George, is there something you want to add about maybe, you know, Baroque or pageantry uh, that has to do with Lady Billows and how... Did you stage this show or you, you were in this show? Well, I ha- I was in it when, when I was a child star, but I, ha- I have also staged it as well. I mean, it's it's just such a gift. I think that if you're a native English speaker... Britain is really your Shakespeare. He is the, the composer we will always go back to. He's probably the composer that we will connect with first in our native language, if not at the beginning for all time, because of the complexity of his work and the, the characters and the action that he's made. That didn't answer your question, but no, I thought it was super intelligent. 
No, no, it's totally okay. Um, I did want to say something about um, England, and like I am not an uh, Anglophile. Uh, I mean, I love Nigella Lawson and um, you know Jamie. Oh, my Oliver. girlfriend, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but I mean, being, the thing, being, always, being, there, being there half some... English is like this. These are my people, you know, and this is the reason why I love this show because, like, I know these people. I even a hundred years, hundred and twenty years later, you see these small-minded people. You see these religious <laughs> people. You you see these these and teenagers that, and these UK young audience. adults struggling against the society that they're growing up in. And like these characters are so eternal. And how wherever you set this piece, 1900, 2000, 2020, you know these people like they live on your block. Okay, so... Yeah, the, so. the, the concept of, of gritty and property meaning the art of being proper and uh and you know sort of social shame that's a that goes to many cultures it's not just not just our buddies across the pond so this is the uh benjamin Britton recording uh with the finale of act one we bring great news to you This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. As of April 3rd, Musical America reports that the Mets' free streams from their HD broadcast archives have reached over 80 million units. And beginning April 6th, the Metropolitan Opera will launch free student streams, a new program of free opera streams for students and teachers worldwide designed to align with Common Core standards and incorporating new live virtual conversations with Met artists and educators from the company's national education program. 
Students will have the opportunity to inter interact directly with an opera singer or member of the creative team from the streaming production in a virtual conversation using the Zoom platform. In an emotional post on the medium, friend of the show Christopher Lowry calls for an end to the culture war and society's divides on political lines. Let's not waste our once-in-a-lifetime chance to come together, he writes. Looking after our common civilization must be our common purpose now more than ever. A link to the article will be on our website, operaboxscore.com. Working to postpone rather than cancel planned events, Lyric Opera Chicago has announced that all of their May and June performances and events have been successfully moved into upcoming seasons. Janine Cesori and Taswell Thompson's Blue will now be presented in January, and Misty Mazzoli and Royce Fabric's Proving Up will be postponed to a later season. A virtual model of Venice's Teatro San Cassiano in 1637 is now available on the theater's website. This is the first time in history anyone has been able to reimagine the original theater. This really is history in the making, and it is the first time we can really get to see what Teatro San Cassiano might have looked like. Check out teatrosancassiano.it. Opera Canada magazine offers their handy reference for what to stream on their Facebook page. Their list includes performances from Pacific Opera Victoria, Opera North's entire ring cycle, and Barbara Hannigan's Equilibrium Young Artist Program. Search for at Opera Canada Magazine on Facebook to be an even more overwhelmed by the choices. In Italy's Il Messaggero, tenor Vittorio Grigolo calls for amplifying voices in historic open-air venues like Arena di Verona. If we want to bring younger people closer to this musical genre, we need to amplify it because modern ears are used to quantities of decibels unknown to those of our grandparents. Today, younger people hear music at the high volumes in cars. They have powerful amplifications. Cities are very noisy. When you take them to the theater, they say you don't hear anything. And it's not a problem of rumors or the fact that there are no longer Caruso or Gigi. It is really a question of ears no longer used to caresses. Again, with the caresses, Vittorio. With his quick intelligence and dramatic gifts, Musical America names Theo Hoffman Artist of the Month for April. The diminutive baritone starred in Dennis and Katya at the 2019 O Festival, and Oliver fell in love. The Indiana University Jacobs School of Music has appointed Russell Thomas as an associate professor of music and voice. The American tenor has earned acclaim for interpretations of Otello, Don Carlo, Manrico, among other dramatic Italian roles, but may, but may be best remembered for his letter to, I forget what uh, newspaper, I should have written that down, about what it's like to be a black male in the opera business. We've got to get him on the show, and I've got to do better prep for the two-minute drill. Looking to expand its repertoire to include more composers of color and to reach a broader audience across greater Boston, the Handel and Haydn Society has named its first-ever programming consultant. Countertenor and social justice warrior Reginald Mobley previously directed H&H's Every Voice program and will take on the role immediately. Mobley has a wrong long reputation of devotion to social and political activism, particularly on inequality issues regarding race, gender, and sexuality within the classical music industry. A blog post from friend of the show, Zach Finkelstein, notes that the London, London's Guildhall School of Music and Drama, uh, by closing down classes in the wake of COVID-19 
of the COVID-19 crisis will essentially be charging full price for a performance training that will effectively include no performances. That was one long sentence. The current price for a master's degree from that institution is between 11250 and 31780 pounds a year. Thank you for writing that out. Vancouver Opera has announced that Tom Wright, the company's current interim general director, will be taking on the GD position in a more permanent capacity. Exit stage right, baritone Silvano Caroli died Saturday at the age of 81. Former choir director for the Leipzig Opera Andreas Pieski, Pieska passed away at the age of 91 on March 23rd. Famed Hungarian maestro Zoltan Pesco passed away on Tuesday, age 83. Metropolitan Opera Orchestra violist Vincent Leonti died of COVID-19 on Saturday at the age of 60. And on this day, April 6th, we celebrate birth anniversaries of English mezzo-soprano Felicity Palmer, born this day in 1944, Polish tenor Richard uh, Karczykowski, born in 1942, Spanish tenor Juan Lloveras in 1934, composer, conductor Andrei Previn, and Russian avant-garde composer Edison Denisov, both born this day in 1929. Italian-American tenor Sergio Franchi, born in 1926. American mezzo Martha Lipton in 1916. And British tenor David Lloyd was born in 1912. What a day to be born if you're a tenor. And that's your two-minute drill. Shall have them to scorn. The Lord shall have them in derision. Thou shalt break them. Thou shalt break them. The rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's pestle. Thou shalt dash them in pieces, in pieces like a potter's pestle. So that was our friend Zach Finkelstein who wanted to remind all of us. That he also sings. He's not just collecting all these uh, stories and writing his blog. He's not just a muckraking uh, investigative journalist. (laughs) Breaking down the business for those not in the know. So we're here with Weston, Ashley, and Matt Cummings via Zoom. Hello. Hello. Hi there. Howdy, y'all. I think I've actually introduced you because we just did uh, the uh, Albert Herring thing, so... In case you're somehow well, hello again. in case you in case you want to know how the sausage gets made, sometimes it's out of order. <laughs> or in case you're one of those people Spoilers. that skips right to two minute drill, you know. <laughs> um, so um, you know, Victoria Gagola's voice is actually pitched about an octave higher. He sounds like a like a like a kind of a teenage boy who just finished going through puberty. <laughs> Oliver, did you make us do video chat so that you could see all of us laugh in I, reaction to I your, actually uh, wasn't your reading even, that story? I wasn't even looking at you guys because I was too busy reading the thing, so I can't even see the Zoom. That's <laughs> he the was thing about in the zone. We were... He was embodying the character. Oh, we were uh, laughing. But, uh, yeah, Vittorio Gogolo and his caresses. Mm. Uh, can't yeah. escape him. Yeah. If there's anyone to uh, have a bad take, although, I mean, the, the, the uh, I mean, 
as uh, the source aside, you know, the source of the idea aside, I think the notion of amplifying voices um, is something that's been pittering around more and more lately. Um, and I would, I would be kind of interested to hear from some of you singers what you guys think about that. So there have been rumors, like, for decades that there are some people who, when they go to a big house, get a little bit of help. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Not, not to name names, but the like, this is not—it's not a new debate uh, right. in, in the opera world because the uh, just that that um, audio enhancement, shall we say, normally has to. No, normally, it's like to overcome about acoustic or, or or something like that, which would certainly that that's really a challenge when you go outdoors because you don't have anything for the sound to bounce back at the audience off of. Absolutely. Uh, um. But in this is this kind of thing, you know, when you're coming down to like uh, uh, when you're in an unfavorable acoustic situation that you can't get out of, or if the composer has written in amplification, yeah, like John Adams or David T. Little or something like that. Exactly, all of that's fine. Or the Grapes of Wrath. But when you come down to like the classics, I think the uh, the the point about I mean, for me, it's always pretty obvious when amplification is being used. The sound doesn't come from the right place, and it's very distracting. Um, this is why, like, I, I can't uh, do musicals really because it just yeah, I had like this cognitive dissonance the entire time. Um, and even that is really different when you go to see a musical where the sound design is really good uh, and right. you actually feel like you're part of it. Versus when you go to one that, like, especially if you go to see a musical on tour and they yeah. just figured out in the last 20 minutes before opening before opening, <laughs> how they were going to get all those mics to work. And you can feel like there's a curtain in front of you. Well, there literally is a curtain in front of you a lot of the time. But, like, that the sound is... It, it's, it's wrong. ...in front of you, and you're not really a part of the show in the same way. That, up, that when you have unamplified voice, uh, you can really do. Matt- well, and... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, Matt, I want you to, yes, if you could hold your microphone in front of your mouth, that'd be great because you're coming. Oh, there it is. Yes, yes. We're we're making this happen as we go. Also, to be fair, you know, he speaks specifically about this notion of amplification to outdoor open air venues. He's not talking about inside at the Matt earlier at San Francisco. He's talking about, you know, like the Arena de Verona, like the Hollywood Bowls of mm-hmm. the example. Like, ain't nobody singing Traviata on its own by itself at the bowl, you know? If we, got, if we want to harken back to our friend a few shows ago, Mr. Kanye West, even his opera had amplification uh, for all of the singers. So, yeah, I mean, if, if you're talking about open air, then, yeah. But also, what open air venue isn't already amplifying their singers, you know? Okay, well, <laughs> I mean, the thing the... is that, you're, that we're not saying here, which maybe needs to be said for people who don't know what we're talking about, Arena de Verona and, like, the Orange Theater, the Orange Theater are amphitheaters. And they are actually right. they are actually designed acoustically so that you could sing in an open air acoustic. They are designed perfectly for sound to reach the entire audience um, without amplification. I mean, you find, go online and, and look for Montserrat Caballer singing Norma in that theater. You know, it's it's been done, and uh, it's just, it's 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 been a historical. You know, um, they're. They're historically known to do this, and great singers have been able to perform in those venues right. without being amplified. Right. And so I right. feel like Grigolo is 
a smaller voiced tenor. I mean, he's he's a lyric tenor, and, but maybe he just doesn't have quite the cut, you know, and the edge to his voice that is required to perform in a place like Verona. Be that yeah. as it may, uh, he also mentions, you know, sort of uh, modern ears are used to quantities of decibels unknown to those of our grandparents. I think what he means there are modern attention spans are different than those of our grandparents. <laughs> well, actually, back, yeah, when you expect the people that were that were performing in those, you know, even even in Caballé's time. First of all, Caballé had 17 lungs. We covered that on last week's show. Um, <laughs> all, uh, even that tracks. Even, even of that era. The the focus and the attention span of the audience were very different. There would right. be there would be much more of a silence coming from the audience goer as opposed to what you would find now. So I'm not saying he's totally right about this. I think I think you're you're partially right about the small voice, but I think what he's getting at is we would need to make some amendments and adjustments if we were going to use like these pieces for modern audiences in these venues. But I do think it's even more than that, Ashley, in that modern audiences are also used to being able to how to consume, they are used to being able to consume music however they want. Yeah. And a lot of times that is with headphones and the sound turned all the way up. Yeah. And that, that kind of, that kind of dynamic range is something that technology allows for that earlier generations really would not have had access to. I don't really think that that answers the question that he is, or the, that, 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 that really is as much of a factor in the problem that he specifically is posing. But when you're looking at um, how people react to acoustic phenomenon, the, the loud, the, just the overwhelming power of an operatic voice 100 years ago would have had a very different import to a to an audience member than it does today. That's fair. I mean, if you look at studies of, uh, of particularly pop music over the past, say, 50, 60 years, um, uh, there are studies that show that there's been a big inflation in, in terms of pure volume, in terms of decibel counts. The average decibel of a pop song is much, much, much higher than yeah. it used to be. And then that is higher than is possible with a purely unamplified human voice. Uh, now, once the, you get, That would you know, be the scientific journal uh, Mansplaining Monthly. <laughs> I well, ascribe to that one all the time. That's how I got to be on this show. So anyway, that, that's a topic that we can revisit when it actually, if anything actually happens. Um, I don't think it's really news. It's just an opinion. It's just a chance for me to like practice my Chachi imitation. Um, so Lyric Opera, <laughs> one of the first companies to come out and talk about what they're doing to deal with what they lost and how they're going to reconstruct their coming season. So we lost the ring cycle and go to Downring, which is gutting, but yeah. they are moving the Janine Tesori and Taswell Blue um, into the next season, which is sad because that means that the Vavrik Mazzoli joint uh, is not going to happen next year. We were so excited about <laughs> that for next year. Uh, and we're going to get, uh, what is this, 42nd Street. <laughs> Thank God they found a way to reschedule Thank God. that. <laughs> I, I was really holding my breath to figure out I, when I could go I see that wait. operatic tap dancing. That's, yes, yes. I definitely want to see 20 tappers on stage at Lyric Opera. <laughs> give me tappers or give me, uh, I was going to say death, but that feels too dark. I don't <laughs> so Ashley, as a, our, our resident music education expert, what do you, how do you feel about the Guildhall story? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, just to bring our listeners up to speed, I worked for a long time in the field of arts education and specifically in student affairs, student services, and admissions. And uh, yeah, I uh, I think that for a lot of 
let's let's go macro. Let's pull the lens back. Let's talk about higher education in general. There are a lot of places that, given the current global situation, there are a lot of students that are pushing for some sort of a, a reimbursement, a credit, uh, basically saying like they're not getting what they paid for. And right. in some cases, those arguments hold water, and in some cases, they do not. I think that in Guildhall's case. I think the students would have a case on their hands because performance is right there in the name of the degree. And if you look at the ratios and the curriculum of how things are split up, uh, you know, if 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 more than say twenty five percent of what was in your instruction in your curriculum is not going to be able to be executed in the way that you imagine when you put your deposit down to attend the school, then yeah, I think I think this is an argument that absolutely holds water. Um, so I've. I've seen it go a number of different ways across across higher education, but I think specifically in the visual and performing arts, there there is much more of a case for, at the very least, people to be frustrated or to be angry. At the same time, these schools are, for all intents and purposes, businesses. They're still paying their faculty. They're still paying the administration. They're still paying everybody from the president down to, you know, the the custodial or the food service workers. So. My in a perfect world, if I were the dean of everything, um, I would find a way to adjust these things. I would find a way to to genuinely and carefully and thoughtfully reduce uh, the expenses in the form of faculty compensation because they're teaching, but they're teaching differently. Um, and I would find a way to reduce the financial burden on the students in in the almost identical ratio. So it's a way to keep the doors open, but get everybody as much of what they need despite a really awful and disappointing set of circumstances. And a related story that we didn't uh, add to our two-minute drill, uh, Yale School of Music, which is like fully endowed, <laughs> uh, is sending their their students checks. I think they're each getting like $500, I forget what, but they're, they don't pay tuition at Yale School of Music because uh, somebody gave a gigantic gift to the school, mm-hmm. I think a couple years ago, like $45 million or something with tickets like that. So. It, yeah, yeah, they're set for a while. Yeah. So if you are a Yale <laughs> music student, you are actually getting money from your mm-hmm. school. Uh, the dream. I know. And, um, and part of that is probably because the, the way that the current stimulus bills really work, students are particularly difficult to like nail down into one category because they yeah. typically aren't working. New entrants to the workforce don't get the same kind of protections. If you're claimed as a dependent on someone else's taxes, mm-hmm. you're not going to get your stimulus check. It's... Uh, that's a really generous gesture from them. So quickly, two stories that are related here. Um, being a black male in opera is very challenging. And uh, I would love to hear what Russell, I mean, Russell Thomas wrote that letter. I forget we read it like word for word. I forget where it came from, but it was so good. And I would love to hear from Russell Thomas. Uh, hopefully his publicist is listening right now we know who you are and you will grant <laughs> also congratulations on the gig what a great thing yeah yeah, yeah absolutely he'll be just our neighbor and on a similar in a similar vein uh reggie mobley uh who was involved in that oregon bach festival debacle from a couple years ago uh he's going from being a one-time curator of program for handel and haydn to being their uh, first ever programming consultant so Great for him. Uh, a friend of mine, a personal friend of mine, just in full transparency. It sounds like somebody's ringing to get into this meeting. And, and that a, would be George. Yeah, a couple more things. Uh, the Met is now offering, you know, the streaming thing for students. 
and the students get to interact with the artists. I don't know how that works, how you time that out. Such so a that, cool, they're doing it on Zoom. Yeah, but like we yeah, are. so cool. The question is, it, like it, it feels like it's gonna be limited to American or at least students that are in the same time zone. Cause like, what if you are trying to access that from like Germany, you have to get up like Bucha Lucas at four o'clock in the morning to like be a part of it or something. Um, the Christopher, well, they're not going anywhere now. Christopher so. Laurie's article for The Medium is really lovely and very emotional. So if you're interested in hearing more from this artist that we had an interview with uh, last summer, please check out his article on The Medium. And uh, birthdays. Felicity Palmer is one of my all-time favorite British singers. Her voice mm-hmm. is so edgy and so dramatic. And she, when she goes into chest... It's so delicious. Uh, seek out her recordings. I think she's so good. I think the last one of the last things I heard her sing was the um, Prioress who dies in in Dialogues of the Carmelites, the first Prioress, mm. and it's it's like a oh. perfect perfect role for her. Uh, yeah. But there's tons of stuff. I think she also plays like uh, the mother in Eugene Onegin. She's you, you'll find her. She's one of the people that like you don't know that you know her, but then when you say, "Oh yeah, she's awesome." She- so. She's on the Bedford recording of Albert Herring. I know. We're going to talk. We- Amazing. Tying <laughs> that in. And sweet, throwback. Yeah. Sweet Theo Hoffman. And, and- so sweet. I love him. We'll be right back with Good Call, Bad Call. And before I let Oliver and the team wrap up this show, once again, Opera in the Time of Corona, let us know what your life is like right now. What stories are we missing on our show What's been an unexpected bright spot for you? What's been lost for good? How has your work been affected by COVID-19? Get your voice on our show. Record yourself and send the MP3 or the WAV file to operaboxscore at gmail.com. All right. So who's got a good call? Oh, you know I do, Oliver, because I got it from you. So (laughs) earlier this week, Oliver uh, tagged me on a Facebook post. And he made my absolute year. Um, so it turns out um, that the uh, uh, Philharmonie de Paris uh, is streaming their performance of Samstag aus Licht, which is one of the operas in the Licht cycle by Karlheinz Stockhausen. And it is just dripping in that post-war avant-garde stank. You know what I mean? I love it so much. <laughs> It is so good. Um, I, I watched it once already. I'm going to watch it again. If you don't know, um, it's uh, the, the light cycle is kind of about, it doesn't matter what it's about. Uh, Saturday is all about Lucifer, and he dies, and weird stuff happens. You don't need to know what happens, because nothing really happens that makes sense. It is just a delight and such an unusual piece. You should really go check it out. It's on their website. Uh, that's philharmoniediparis.fr. Uh, uh, it's somewhere on there. You can find it. I just want to make a point that uh, post-war avant-garde stank is going to be my new jazz name. <laughs> <laughs> I also have a good call, and it's sports-related. Um, so here in the city of Chicago, we are we are known for our sports. We are known for our sports teams. Go Bears, go Sox. Uh, and today, there was a really great initiative that was launched uh, through the mayor's office in the city of Chicago called We Don't Play, uh, which is basically part of the shelter-in-place, stay-at-home orders. And so the mayor's office has teamed up with every major sports franchise in the city of Chicago, from the Chicago Fire, from the women's soccer team that I'm forgetting, uh, 
Red Stars, Red Stars, uh, Cubs, Sox, Bears, Hawks, everybody. Uh, there are representatives from each of these teams that are basically uh, doing public service announcements to remind folks, hey, we don't play right now. And the reason for that is because we're trying to stay home just like we're asking you to do and keep everybody safe. Uh, so I just thought it was a really cool initiative. They just did the big launch today at Soldier Field. Um, and my boyfriend, Jonathan Taves, was the representative for the Hawks. So I couldn't help but be excited about that. Nice. So um, happy for you. Matt? You're good. Uh, my good call is inspired by my workday listening, as, as often as the case, uh, which has been the complete works of Stephen Sondheim, basically, since he celebrated his 90th birthday a couple weeks ago. Uh, if you're someone who loves opera but really can't figure out how to get musical theater to work for you, Stephen Sondheim is a great place to start because it is so rich and layered, and every time you come back to it, you're going to find a new rhyme that you didn't realize was there before. And uh, or a reference to the Rosen Cavalier in the end uh, uh, during uh, a little night music. It's just, you know, it, there are rewards there if you are studying up, listening to Opera Box score, and uh, applying that knowledge other places. And I want to uh, throw it back to Zachary James. Thank you for your voice memo, which we played earlier in the show, and to tease that we are trying to set up an interview with Zachary James. So look forward to that. Uh, in the coming weeks, maybe even next week. We'll see. We already had one weird baritone last week, so I don't know how many weird baritones we can get. But um, we specialize in that. Um, and if some weird? of you... Yeah. Paul, weird baritone. Some of you got to see... That's me. ...that uh, Akhenaten, which wasn't broadcast in Chicago, but it's coming soon, I know it is. George, do you have any? George is not there. Well... Uh, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at boxershorts.com. B-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S dot com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com and Today Classical on Facebook. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score, and this podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is me, Oliver Camacho. For Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, George Cedequist, and our special guest, Lydia Yankovskaya, we continue to ask you, we ask you to continue the conversation about opera, even when none is happening live. We're back with an all-new podcast next week at some point, probably April 15th. on Wednesday, with more opera news, more hot takes, maybe an interview with Zachary James. Join us.